Welcome to the Nehemiah Entrepreneurship Community Podcast. I'm your host, Patrice Saigay, and I'm here today with uh, our legal counsel, at least on the estate side, right? On the estate side, uh, John Boyle, Boyle's Tun. Yes, absolutely. Uh, John is an attorney here in Portland, Oregon. He's also an entrepreneur business owner. I mean, John, you made partner at such a young age. I mean, you came out of college like in less than like, what, three, four years, you made partner? No, no, not quite that quick. Uh, I've actually been an attorney 15 years now. Oh, 15 years? Yeah. It's been that long? Yeah, I started practicing in 2006. It just, oh, my uh, goodness. But yeah, I was at this firm a couple of years and then became an owner with my partner, Justin. Oh, okay. That's right. You were there. So you may have partnered there in a short period, but you were practicing way before. Yeah. I had practiced for seven years before I joined this. All firm. right. All right. Well, thank you, John, for being with us. John is known as a good friend. And John and I were talking at his office uh, when we were doing our estate planning. And we were talking about politics, one of my favorite topics. And... John informed me that he had he had he was a Republican and he became a Democrat, um, uh, and in part because of his frustration as to some of the challenges with our current president. And so I told John that we're going to be doing a, a, a series on on faith, uh, politics, and entrepreneurship. If he wouldn't mind coming and making the case for the other side, we've had um, John. Did you hear? Um, did you hear Jonathan's? Uh, yeah. Take? From I the think. other side? All right. I chance to listen to all of it. Yeah, he was pretty good. So hopefully you'll be able to match up to him. So Jonathan came in and Jonathan made a good case for Donald Trump and uh, and the Republican Party. And uh, and today John is going to make a case for Biden, for the Democratic Party. And it's interesting because John used to be Republican. So it's good to have kind of his take. So John, first of all, um, one thing I know about you, similar to Jonathan, is that you both men of conviction. And, uh, and 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 principles. That's what I want you guys in. And 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 also, um, you're 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 a man of faith. You're an entrepreneur, and you you're a job creator. So you understand all these things. Uh, so thank you for being here with us, and thank you for your willingness to kind of have this conversation because we do want our audience to be able to hear and get different perspective, educate themselves as to why and how they should consider um, making the decision about the next election, which is, by the way, it's uh, a week from Tuesday. So, John, before we get into the um, the discussion today, a little about yourself. On yeah. Jonathan, you've not written a book yet? Yeah. No. no. You did run for office uh, one year. I ran twice. I was unsuccessful once. I was successful the other time. So All right. yeah, I ran in the primary in 2016 for a state representative seat here in Oregon. Uh, I lost. And then uh, through that campaign, though, I met a number of people in the city where I lived, King City, and was encouraged to run for city council for an open seat there. And I was elected, uh, served from 2017 to 2020 on city council. So I got to handle you know local issues, uh, which was a, an honor and a privilege to get to do that. Um, I'm also a trustee at the Oregon Historical Society, uh, volunteer on a number of other boards here in town. I'm a father to two wonderful children. We have a three-year-old and now a seven-week-old, so didn't get a lot of sleep last night, but working on it. Uh, and I'm husband to Anna Lauren, uh, an amazing woman who is incredibly supportive to me and um, just a blessing to everybody she meets. So that's and, a little uh, about me. Yeah. And you got your law degree from... 
I went to USC Law School in Los Angeles and practiced law down there for a few years before I moved back home to Portland, where I grew up. Awesome. John, normally when people win an elected office, they kind of stay there on and on and on, but you kind of stop. Any reason why you didn't keep going? Yeah. And my situation is largely personal. We live in King City, but we're uh, going to be moving to another city here shortly. And we're actually going to be doing it. I resigned in February before COVID became what it is now. I uh, thought we'd be moving shortly. Uh, and then the move got delayed because of COVID. So ironically, I'm still in the city where I've already, but I've already resigned from council. So it was going to be too much of an issue to try to get the seat back or write it out. And also knowing I'm not going to be living in that community for years to come, it makes sense to let somebody else come in and have the seat and make decisions for the long term of the city if if I'm not going to be a resident there. Awesome. John, um, before we get into the national politics, let's talk about local a little bit, because most of our listeners and viewers are not from Oregon okay. and they do watch the issue of Portland in the news. Yeah. And everyone has a perspective about what's going on in Portland. Could right. you share both as a citizen, a businessman of Portland, your business is actually downtown Portland, your office. Sure, we're in the suburbs. One, one of the, close, then, close in the suburbs. Yeah, you also were a, um, a, a on the council. So mm -hmm. give us a perspective for those watching and listening. Yeah. Give us a perspective in terms of the state of Portland. Is it as bad as it's portrayed through the national media? Is it better? What's your perspective as an entrepreneur, a, 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 a retired uh, city council member and and the and a, and a citizen of Oregon. Yeah, so Portland, like most major metro areas, you know, you've got your downtown core, and then you've got expanding downtown areas and areas of entrepreneurship around that, and then you get into the suburbs. In the suburbs, or even anywhere outside, kind of a real you know tight core in the city of Portland, it doesn't feel like anything's different. I don't see there's no protests or riots anywhere near my house. There's no vandalism. There's no destruction uh, anywhere near my office. I don't feel unsafe in the city. Um, the majority of the uh, protests and then when there are riots, the riots are in a relatively compact area of downtown. And there has been property destruction down there. And you'll see it. There's boarded up windows uh, that they now turn into murals uh, just a week ago our historical society and history museum, uh, the windows were shattered and they threw uh, rioters through flares into the building in an apparent attempt to burn down the history museum. Um, they did it on what they called uh, the indigenous people's day of rage, um, sort of trying to co-opt indigenous people's day. Uh, from what I last saw, the lead organizer of it was an, a known anarchist from Seattle which I always ironically don't quite understand how anarchists can organize, um, but nevertheless they did. And this was an intentional effort to uh, cause destruction and property damage. Now here their target could not have been more misplaced. The historical society has worked so hard uh, for a long time to tell the true story of Oregon, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In 2019, the historical society put out a journal on the history of white supremacy in Oregon, sharing all of the, the dirty past um, and all the places where Oregon, Oregon needs to atone and where it can improve. The Historical Society has worked incredibly hard and closely with the nine federally recognized tribes here in Oregon to make sure that to the extent the Historical Society gets to tell stories, we get to tell their story correctly the way they want it told through their words. Um, they worked really hard uh, with the tribes on the new Experience Oregon exhibit 
So where most history uh, exhibits in the US often started with the Mayflower, the Experience Oregon Project now starts with the earlier story of Oregon and the original inhabitants of Oregon um, to make sure that their story is understood and their place in the Oregon story is, is highlighted. Um, so that destruction, that damage, it was heartbreaking, but then it also showed how much community support there is for the historical society. Um, and so it's coming back. I think at least the studies I've seen on the damage downtown and the loss of business, um, loss of business due to the pandemic exceeds any loss in business due to the protesting and rioting. So the pandemic has been more damaging economically um, than the riots when there, when there is rioting. Um, so it's, it's both better and worse. I mean, the images we see on TV of, you know, riot police, tear gas, um, that is happening. But for most Portlanders, we're not going to be seeing it very often. You have to almost go seek it out. The Portland leadership have been criticized by the, 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 the Trump government and many others around the nation for how it's handled uh, the situation. As a citizen of Oregon and, and one whose business is nearby, um, it, fair, fair the criticism or unfair? I would criticize the leadership of Portland, but for the opposite reason mm. of the administration. I don't think that the mayor has done enough to listen and to meet with the different groups involved and to try to find ways to um, understand what people are protesting and hear their message and seek reforms and truly seek to, to address their pain and their concerns and show empathy. Um, and so, whereas, it seems like the president would want to, wants to see more police, more crackdowns, more police, you know, hitting protesters. It seems like what he's saying. Um, that I can't agree with by any means. I don't think that, how does more violence lead to peace and harmony in Portland? I, I don't, that doesn't even make sense to me. Um, and then it, now we have to get into it publicly or the, the national issues. Uh, president Trump has added Portland, Seattle, and New York City to a list of what he's officially called um, anarchist jurisdictions. And he's going to halt federal funding from the Department of Human Services to these cities because he doesn't like the way they're policing. The funding he is halting, a lot of it is for newborn screenings. It's for COVID relief efforts. It's for HIV treatment. So he is intentionally cutting funding to help that, that is meant to help the weakest, the most vulnerable in our society because he's mad at the mayor of Portland. How is that action on his, on his part going to achieve the ends he's trying to achieve? It just doesn't make sense to me. Good, good. good. So then in that case then, because the, the mayor of Portland criticizes the, at least Trump or the federal government for yeah. not doing the very thing that you're saying, which is listening. But it seems like they themselves are victims of not doing the same thing. Is that, it's kind of strange. Well, I think it's fair. I think that the federal government's certainly not listening, but I also don't, I think the mayor of Portland didn't do enough early enough. It didn't seem like there was any coalition building, at least that I saw. Um, I think that, and I don't know why, 
Um, and it's easy to be, I mean, I'm not the one trying to do, it. I don't know if he's, he's calling, uh, coalition leaders all the time to try to build rapport and hear them and, and reach some reforms that will address their concerns. He may well be, uh, but it's not getting out there publicly or it wasn't at least from what I was seeing. It's also hard to know what's really happening, um, in a city like Portland when the national news literally and figuratively trumps everything. Yeah. yeah. How, how hard is it for any local news to cut through and actually to know what's going on um, when everything is Trump all the time? Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Well, so let's talk about the national elections, which is coming up. First, you mm -hmm. made a decision. You were a Republican. Right? And when, you, when I supported your candidacy, yep. uh, you know, gave a little change. Uh, Thank you. You ran as a Republican in, yes. in a very tough market for Republicans. Yeah. Um, so, but you made a change. Why? Um, so when I was running, I, I believed some things about, uh, Republican fiscal policy that I thought was understood and accepted. And it turned out to be largely false or it didn't work out the way I thought I did. So part of it is a change of evidence. Um, I've had a different, um, understanding of economics now than I did then based on personal experience and, and watching what big companies are doing around the country and how tax reform does or doesn't stimulate job growth um, and boost the economy. Um, so that's part of it. But more than anything else, it was the Republican Party's embrace of Trump. Mm. I think that, you know, I was running in my primary race was in May 2016. Trump was on the ballot here in Oregon at the same time. So I was knocking on doors, talking to Republicans every day knocked on literally thousands of doors. And it was amazing to me how often the people I would meet at the door, and these are all Republicans, because it was a primary, they just, they said they wanted to blow up the government, blow up DC, toss it out. That, that was what people felt. And that was the national mood among Republicans at that time. And a vote for Trump in their mind was doing that. It was tossing out the status quo. Um, and in my opinion, they were willing to accept all of the consequences that come with that. They didn't have a solution or a plan for what it looks like on the other side once you've tossed out the status quo. And when Trump got into office, he proved that he doesn't have a plan either. Um, when I first went to change my party was the weekend that Trump instituted the Muslim travel ban. I went online to change my registration that day um, and Oregon's voter registration was down for repair that weekend. So I, I had to wait a few more weeks actually. Um, but it was the fact that he instituted the travel plan seven days, six days after he took office, January 27th, with absolutely no plan for how it was going to be implemented. My best friend is married to a Canadian woman. They had a child. They have two kids now. They live in D.C., but they were on vacation in Vancouver, British Columbia. Now, she is Canadian, uh, but her parents are Iranian and were fleeing Iran when she was born. She was born in Italy. They emigrated to Canada. So by Iranian law, she's an Iranian citizen because her parents are Iranian. Nothing she can do about it. She's never lived there. They were caught in Vancouver, BC, the weekend of the travel ban. He, a US citizen, his daughter, a US citizen, she, a green called cardholder, and Border Patrol could not tell them whether they were going to be allowed back into the US because the travel ban went into effect on a Friday. They were madly calling various embassies and consulates. And they have political connections because of what they do in DC. At one point they talked to border patrol in Vancouver and border patrol told them, well, when you guys find out whether we're allowed to let you in, would you let us know? Wow. 
They were they were they were better connected than the border patrol agents they were talking to. So when governing is hard and it takes planning and it takes people who are open to criticism and critique so that you work on a strategy and you compromise to get the best possible solution. And then it requires diligent implementation. President Trump got into office, wrote an edict to ban all travel from seven Muslim countries. I just said, we're doing it. And didn't tell anybody how to implement it. And then we saw all of that, what fell out of that. Um, I don't think it, it made our country any safer. Right. So what was the point? What was the end game of that? And then he, you know, has changed the travel ban over time from then. You know, if you look up, there's articles about um, I was just reading a story about a, a Yemeni woman whose husband was American. Their two year old daughter had a uh, fatal disease, was in a hospital at UCSF in San Francisco, dying. And the Yemeni woman was not allowed into the U.S. to say goodbye to her daughter. They would not grant her a visa because of the Muslim travel ban because of her Yemeni citizenship. And there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of stories like this out of the Trump policies. And so to ignore the suffering of the most vulnerable among us to achieve whatever end he's trying to achieve, that doesn't seem, that doesn't align with my faith. I understand. So, you know, another area this comes up, the Muslim ban, immigration in general is a thing, right? He wants to stop illegal immigration. Understood. I can understand the, that policy stance. But don't we need to do it humanely? Right? The child separation, right? We're aware of thousands of children who are separated from their family. And before the official policy went into effect, there was a pilot program where they separated a thousand kids. Attorneys uh, appointed by the court have now reported back that 545 of those kids have not been reunited with their families because they cannot find their parents. There's 545 orphan children in the U.S. who were taken away from their parents and their parents were sent home, deported. <coughs> U.S. government didn't do enough due diligence to get contact information for the parents or have some way or plan for reconnecting them. They separated them without the plan to reconnect because they didn't care. And this is directly from Trump's administration. John Kelly, his chief of staff at the time, said they were doing this as a deterrent. That's even worse. They didn't do it because they were going to stop these specific families from immigrating to the U.S. They already had captured them. They could just deport them together as a family. They caught them, separated them, so that then they could tell other families in Guatemala, Honduras, wherever these individuals are coming from, that if you come here, we will separate you from your kids. They used those thousands of kids as a deterrent to try to create legal immigration. Is that something we as Christians can accept? Can we seek, are we allowed to seek our means or our ends by any means possible? We can certainly believe that we need to have a better immigration system and we need to stop illegal immigration, but are we allowed to pursue it by these methods? And these are the kind of questions I ask myself. I'm not speaking on behalf of my company or Democrats, I'm not a spokesperson, I'm not a PR guy, I don't have any role with the Democratic Party. But this is how I view the issues and this is how I see the news. Mm. Can we accept what the Trump administration is, has done and certainly will continue to do 
in order to achieve their goals, whatever they may be. He certainly has no problem achieving his ends by any means necessary. But as Christians, can we? Good question. So John, um, so our focus here is around how politics affects faith, entrepreneurship, job creation. And so I'm gonna kind of now get into how the, how the other side you think will will do that better. But but before we do, um, one of the points you made was the fact that the Trump supporters wanted to vote for Trump when he first ran because they wanted to blow Washington. Yeah. So question for you. So uh, that motivation actually, you know, came from their frustration of how Washington was going. Mm -hmm. So could you then speak to that? In other words, um, what can those who are politicians, those who care, like you, um, I love history and, and, and I love the Republic. And I think that whatever we do, we have to do it in a way that's decent and orderly. Mm -hmm. But you do have to agree that career politicians have created an environment that frustrated many. Maybe the way they're going about it is not right. But could you speak that a little bit? I mean, what what do you agree with maybe their frustrations but maybe not their me methods sir i mean certainly it, corrupt politicians i mean that's just ex expected at this point right how much respect if you just think of a generic politician take away their name and any personal identification so we don't know who they are and we might any personal good feelings we have toward them and if you just hear a career politician we just assume they're corrupt right that's the system we're in right now um, we assume that they accept lobby money and maybe I just personally think that way about, you know, the system. I agree with you. I think that there is a large element of the system that needs reform. Um, I don't know if it's term limits, um, for our Congress, I think that might help. And there's a lot of people who have been there long enough and you see, um, at some point, it seems like the effort to keep their seat outweighs anything else. Right. You know, I, you know, in the original intent, it seemed, you know, you had citizen politicians sort of like when I was on city council, I had my day job. City council was just something I did part of the time to help out my community. I was trying to do it to serve the community. I wasn't paid, took a lot of hours, um, but it was volunteer work. Right. You know, so it's been, yeah. Right. Frustration, wrong solution in your view, in terms of Trump being the answer. Yeah. Well, and if you want to, I mean, this is very much, I think, like the Tea Party movement in 2010. Mm -hmm. They want to burn the house down, but they don't have a plan to build the new one up. Mm. If you want to destroy a system, you have to at least believe the system should exist and you should have a way to reform it or have a plan in place. Um, what I see right now from Republicans, starting with the Tea Party, is they want to, they, they fundamentally believe government doesn't exist. And then they will seek to prove that point by not making, by being in government and making sure that it doesn't work, right? They think big government is awful, government can't solve any problem. So then they get into office and they prove that governments can't solve problems because they're not doing, you know, they're not even trying. Um, Let's take us back to our founders. Okay. They set out to kind of un undo England's rule yeah. in the new territory. Sure. But to your point, they had a plan for a new form of government. Mm -hmm. um, so any, what lessons can we learn 
from our founding fathers as those who feel as though we now look more like England yeah. than we do like the thing that our founding fathers set out to establish. Uh, I mean, I don't know that we look more like England. I mean, I think if I were to define America right now, it's kind of a, we're a crony capitalist system. You know, there is capitalism, but it most advantages those with the most connections. Um, and the biggest players get all the rewards. Um, you know, something like an oligarchy. I mean, you look at some of these massive companies, um, executive pay across the board has far exceeded average salaries. You know, we're not talking about executives making 10 times or 20 times their employees. Now we're talking about it being much more than that. Um, so th those are the top are winning in our system more than anywhere else. And I'm part of that. I am one of the ones who get to take advantage of it. I'm doing great. My life is great. My family is great. We own a house. You know, I'm an owner of a company, um, but there, but I also had a lot of opportunities along the way as a privilege of my upbringing and a family that helped me out. Um, you know, I didn't have to pay for my college or law school. I got some scholarships, but my family paid for it. That's a huge blessing and an advantage that I had that many other people don't have. Um, so getting back to, you know, the system and what is good about the system. I think one of the things that is interesting right now to me, and, and this is going back to a point Jonathan made, you know, in his three uh, reasons why to vote for Trump, or three factors to look at, leadership policy. What was the, th the third one? That was really interesting to me. Judge yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Who the president is going to appoint as a lifetime federal judge was one of his three factors. And it was the deciding factor. Because he gave Biden the win on leadership. He awarded the point to Biden on leadership. Mm -hmm. He awarded the point to Trump on policy. And then he awarded the point to Trump on judges. Mm -hmm. I think the founding fathers would be aghast. Why? Yeah, because the idea that the judges appointed by the president are there to support the president and the president's policies is not, that does not seem what it was intended to be. I think the idea was you're appointing judges who are going to be fair judges and call balls and strikes, so to speak, without any predilection for one party or another. Everyone, we all talk about the court now. Amy Coney Barrett's probably going is probably being confirmed right now as as we're talking. Everyone talks about it being a six three Republican court or six three conservative court. We know where all the judges are. There's not even swing judges anymore. And the idea that it was so important for Mitch McConnell and the Senate to, um, they breached their constitutional duty under the Obama administration by refusing to vote on his judges. In the last few years of Obama's presidency, they held 106 federal judgeships, judgeships open. They refused to vote on 106 different seats. That shrunk the court by 12%. There are only 880 judges. They refused to seat 106 of them so that they could hold those seats to be nominated by the next president, Trump. So Trump gets to put his thumb, his whole hand, his elbow, stand on the scale and add 106 judges who he believes are going to vote with him. And when Republicans did that, it allowed... If you're going to hold the seat open, if you're going to, the Constitution says advise and consent. 
It doesn't say you, you get to choose whether to vote them up or down or not. You're supposed to have the vote. You're supposed to do it. Um, they chose not to do it. So they breached that constitutional duty, held 106 seats open. When they did that, they had to make sure that it was worth that payoff, right? So they had to make sure they got 106 judges who would do exactly what they believe is the right thing. So now, effectively, the third branch of government is um, explicitly political now. Let me ask you a question, though. Yeah, so it is no longer independent. Doesn't the other side do the same thing? I would know. I would say that, it, well, to some extent now, I think that we are going to continue. It's the pendulum that swings, right? Republicans pull it one way. Democrats are going to counterbalance by pulling it the other. I think we need to take a good look at this whole system and see if it's even correct. Uh, Joe Biden, in his recent interview, wants to do a panel, a bipartisan panel, Democrats and Republicans, and look at what we need to do to fix the judicial system in the sense of we can't be holding seats open until the next president. We can't make it about which president is appointed the judge. We need to, if they're um, a reputable jurist, Senate should vote on them up or down. Give them an up or down vote. Um, I don't think it's equal both sides. I think that certainly Democrats are going to appoint judges who they feel align with their views. But I don't think that they are going to, at least they hadn't to this point, deny, they never denied uh, George Bush 100 seats. I see. I see. And that's a good point. But but my question, though, to you is that when you think about a president, whether it's Obama, Bush, Clinton, um, wouldn't they kind of select uh, particular Supreme Court judges based on who they perceive and interpret the Constitution the way they and their supporter believe is the most appropriate way? Wrong or right? The last example we have is who did Obama nominate? Merrick Garland. By all accounts, a very moderate selection, right? If you look at Merrick Garland's judicial record, he was not—he's not an extremist. He was not a partisan. He did not—you know—the last three—is it three or three out of the last four justices appointed by Republicans worked on the Bush v. Court, Bush v. Gore case on the side of Bush. These were partisan lawyers who then rose up through the judicial ranks. Um, Merrick Garland was, at least is my understanding, was much more moderate. So your concern is, in a sense, you feel, because because uh, the Republicans or the right accuse this of the left in mm -hmm. terms of using the courts as a um, as to, to rewrite the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. You're saying that, that you feel that that's true more so on the other side. I'm not, I don't want to get into the, the rewriting the Constitution piece of it, the originalism versus, I mean, that's a whole long uh, judicial debate on philosophy and all that. Um, I think originalist judges tend to reach the outcome they want to reach. I think they reach the outcome first and then they figure out how to fit it into their framework of uh, judicial philosophy. Um, so I think we're going to, there's no way to get truly a judge that doesn't have any context or bias or perspective. Of course, these are human beings. Um, but I think if they're like a Merrick Garland, if they are qualified, they should at least be considered by the Senate. That's what the Constitution calls for. And if the Republicans are such originalists, how are they able to deny that section of the Constitution that says the Senate shall advise and consent to the nominee?
So your biggest issue is what they did to Obama, which in a sense is now even hypocritical, what they're doing right now with Bush. Well, if we want to get into hypocritical, Lindsey Graham and 40 other Republicans said, if there is an opening on the Supreme Court in the last year of a presidency, you shall not appoint somebody. We will not vote on somebody. That's what they said for Mary Garland's seat. And Lindsey Graham said, use my words against me. Yeah. Now he, he pushed forward the nominee. So that let's get back to faith on that. By any means necessary, again, why can't, you know, I understand why people support Trump, some people. You know, for people who, if I've got clients who are very, you know, high net worth and their estates will save millions of dollars under the Trump estate tax reforms, literally millions of dollars that will go to their kids instead of the government. If you want to vote for Trump because of that, I understand that. You're voting your personal pocketbook. Fine. But you don't then need to pretend like everything else he does is great. Sure. Don't need to defend the guy. It, it, politics now in our country, it feels like everybody's picking up a jersey and everybody's fighting for their team when we should all be fighting for the American team and having discussions about policy. Mm. So... Uh, yeah. So, so here's what, in a sense, you're saying, look, it's okay to vote for Trump for any personal reasons, but it's not okay to then justify everything he does because you're trying to uh, support why you're voting for him. It's like everybody I talk to, it feels like everybody is a part of the PR wing for either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Fair. I have a very hard time getting anybody to engage with me on a conversation of what do you personally believe? Mm. You know, just let, let's not, don't worry about the talking points. Yeah. Don't worry about that. Just what do you believe? Yeah, I mean, one of the questions I've been asking myself, and I would love to get more honest feedback from other people, you know, Patrice, who do you think Jesus would vote for? Mm. Is that an actual question? That's an actual question. Yeah. Good question. Personally, and, and this, some may not necessarily like this, I, I think that Jesus would not necessarily vote. I agree. I agree. That's crazy. No, um, I, that's the answer I've come back to again and again. I mean, I have a, a huge respect for, you know, Mennonites um, and different faiths that often opt out of the political process or choose not to vote for the sake of their faith so that they can have integrity. I agree. I don't think Jesus would endorse anybody or vote for anybody. Right. And yet we've got um, was it Pat Robertson out there saying that God has ordained Trump for a second uh, term, you know, and this is what God is wills. How can people, I, I mean, I don't know. So let's, talk about that. so let's get into the faith element. You're a man of faith. So the, the argument, and you heard Jonathan make the argument that many uh, Trump supporters will say, but but Jonathan, I mean, but, but John, the issue is when it comes to things like abortion, mm -hmm. Yes. Um, you know, uh, family values. Yeah. And and things that uh, and in some cases, they would also say um, the discrimination against people of faith. OK. That so, yeah. we believe that Trump is despite his behavior, despite whatever. But we believe that he's the best man to support and stand for those things, while the other side will go the opposite. What do you say to that? So I, 
reject the premise that Trump is the most pro-life president ever, the way Jonathan, Jonathan said. I will agree Trump's policies and the judges he's nominated are uh, avowedly anti-abortion. But I don't think you can claim that anti-abortion and pro-life are the same thing. Mm. Right. I, I agree. And if that is the number one reason why somebody votes, if they are 100 percent, you know, their first through 10th priority is being anti-abortion and ensuring that everything possible is done for that, then I can understand logically why they would vote for Trump. But they do have to accept all of his anti-life policies and actions with it, right? So the child separation, the um, his healthcare plan or lack thereof, he and Republicans have been railing against the Affordable Care Act since 2010. Trump was elected in 2016. Patrice, what's his health care plan? He would say that he's written a lot of, uh, you know, uh, whatever that pre the president does. A lot executive of uh, orders. executive yeah. orders. No. So he has no published plan. There is not a well thought. He, if you ask in, in the interviews, he says over and over again, I'm going to have health care will be cheaper and better under me. Fantastic. Let's do it. But how? Show me the how. And that's what he does. I mean, I don't trust his word. He lies about the big things and the little things. Right? Um, on tax policy, when he was running for office, he said he was going to raise taxes on the wealthy. He would pay a lot more in taxes under his plan than he did today. That's what he said in 2016, over and over again in his rallies. I'm going to raise taxes on the wealthy. I'm going to be paying more taxes. When his tax bill came out, it absolutely did not raise taxes on the wealthy, right? So I don't believe that he has a healthcare plan, even if he says he has one. He hasn't published it. He said in the interview that was aired last night with Leslie Stahl, he'll, it'll come out after we repeal Obamacare. So again, he wants to destroy the current system, but won't tell anybody what the plan is to replace it or how it's going to improve lives. They just want to cut. He wants to cut the Affordable Care Act. And then he's got nothing to replace it. He says he's going to protect pre-existing conditions. They haven't proposed any legislation that would preserve the obligation of insurance companies to insure people with a pre-existing condition. That's an easy bill to write. If you're, it, they could have written it into their repeal legislation. They haven't. They just want to repeal. They don't want to replace. What if this had been, John, you don't understand. We have um, the Speaker of the House on the other side who checks us every time we try to do anything that we believe is good and good and right. What bill? I, I don't think there has been a whole lot of proposals there, um, especially not in healthcare. I have not seen a healthcare bill passed by Republicans. The, um, the one attempt, remember Republican John McCain voted it down and that was a full repeal because there was nothing to replace it yet. That was his whole perspective. John McCain was being responsible in that instance. You can't tear down the system until you have something to replace it. Mm. So, 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 in, from your perspective, you believe that when we look at the issues of life and the things that and religious freedom, you believe that we have to look at it from a more holistic perspective versus one 
single issues. Absolutely. I think we need, yes, absolutely. On the life in particular and, you know, healthcare, uh, protecting people with pre-existing conditions, um, helping the homeless, right? You know, getting back to the economy and job creation and what we talk about, you know, your organization and entrepreneurship. Um, when we talk about the econ economy, so much of the country focuses on two numbers, you know, the stock market and the current unemployment claims. How often do we talk about the number of people in poverty, right? During the pandemic, an additional 8 million people have slipped below the poverty line. How often do we focus on solutions for homelessness, right? That's the economy too. Yeah. That's life, right? The, let's, let's focus on those that are suffering the most in our country if we're going to be pro-life. Let's try to help though them as part of the platform. So with that, so, so one of the concerns that um, those on the right point out is is that there is a there's a very strong activism on the left to do away with any legitimate sense of God and and faith in our public square. And so Trump is slowing that down. Are you at all concerned? First, do you agree? And second, are you concerned as a man of faith that the Democratic Party or even the left uh, is being accused of this? I mean, I, I know that they're being accused of it. I can only speak from my personal experience. I've never been persecuted for my faith. I've never been, uh, no one's ever stopped me from living my life the way I believe I should. Um, you know, our money says under God and things like that. I mean, there's, I don't know what the, the culture war component of the war on Christmas idea, those were individual private companies that made that decision that they didn't want to say Christmas because they wanted to be more inclusive and speak to a broader public and be more generic, right? Less powerful, certainly, and more generic, right? The more generic we are, the less power we have, the less meaningful we are. But who's looking to Starbucks for meaning in life, mm. right? The Christmas cups or having it say Merry Christmas. Like if I'm, I, I, whether or not uh, a, co a private company uses the word Christmas or talks about faith has no bearing on my personal faith. It doesn't impact me one way or the other, right? So I don't know. I mean, the, the persecution of Christians it's happening around the world. I don't, I've, I can only speak to my own personal experience. I have not experienced it personally in the US. And I'd be curious to hear the stories of those who claim personal persecution. Mm. Um, you know, it, I mean, where, are there examples that you're aware of? I mean, the only thing that even comes to mind is the cake baking, right? Two instances, one in Colorado, one in Oregon here. Christian bakers um, under the laws of their states were not allowed to discriminate and refuse to serve someone based on their sexual orientation, right? That was the law. Like if you're going to engage in the public sphere, the public market, and get the protection of the laws of the state you're in, you have to serve everybody, right? You serve without discrimination. I mean, I... I I understand why that's why the states have taken that position. I understand on the other side too why the bakers feel the way they feel about that, and I understand how that puts them in a difficult position. 
So, but then I get back to kind of my, the question I often think about is, as Christians, what are we allowed to do or not do? Where do we engage? Um, and for them, if, you know, not all avenues are available, right? So if they feel that baking a cake for somebody is against their faith and the state says they'd have to do it, maybe they can't be a baker. Mm. So I don't know. you're saying as Christians, we have to be willing to accept certain consequences for our faith as we engage in the public square. How often did Jesus talk about sacrifice? Mm. Right? So would you say that American, to a certain extent, we kind of taken for granted, given our history, that there, there is and will be a level of persecution for living out our faith in the, in the general marketplace? Because historically, America had been have not been as, you know, one would say as more very pro-Christianity in all of our processes and it's, it's weaning down a bit. Is that right. kind of your position? Yeah, sort of. I mean, the Constitution was written to explicitly state that there shall be a separation between church and state. You know, there was not going to be any official religion, largely because of, you know, the first immigrants who came here um, suffered religious persecution at home. And so they came to the U.S. And so they wanted to have separation of church and state. Um, it had, but there was never a whole, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of pushback on that until more recently in some of the, the culture wars, I think, that people are trying to instigate. Um, because now they actually have to address what does that mean? We, we, there is separation between church and state. The state cannot preference one religion over another. Right? And we agree with that. But we're, are we willing to live with what that means? Yeah. yeah. We don't get everything. Yeah. Let's talk about entrepreneurship. So the case is also being made, Jonathan, that if your guy wins, uh, that will hurt business. Uh, taxes will go up. That impacts job creation. You're an entrepreneur. You're a business guy. Mm -hmm. uh, is, do you agree with that or why, why not? Yeah. So first off, my understanding of the policy, and again, I'm not from the campaign. I'm not speaking for Biden. All I know of the policies is what I can read out there. Um, you know, if taxes are only going to be raised on people making over $400,000 a year, so it's only high income earners, they're going to be taxed additionally. The rate is going to go up, but it's not going up to, you know, the historic highs of the 70% bracket. It's going to be, you know, a few percent more than it was before on the income over $400,000, my understanding. Um, as a business owner, that is the last thing I think about in terms of our hiring, right? What drives hiring in our firm is whether we have services that people want to pay for. And are we better at creating the services and how can we do that? Um, now I'm in a personal services business, right? So our overhead is low compared to many companies. Um, but we, if the taxes are raised on high income earners that will not affect the hiring we i would say for our company um i don't really know how it affects others i mean i understand if they say the corporate tax rate goes up but how many corporations pay the full corporate tax rate to begin with right you know it's relatively low especially the biggest companies we see the headlines you know amazon how much are they paying taxes that kind of thing um and if the money is being used to pay for um, economy building tools, 
I think it will actually make all of society better off. I think the economy is actually going to get better. Um, I was looking, you know, Moody's, an independent analyst evaluated Biden's plan and actually thinks he'll grow the economy by about a trillion dollars over his four years if his policies are being implemented. Uh, and because the reason is part of that money is going to go to pay for education. Uh, part of it is his plans for uh, universal pre-K, right? What are, as a business owner, I look at what are the resources we have, what is being underutilized, where are opportunities for growth? In the U.S. right now, where are opportunities for growth in the employment market and in the economy as a whole? Increasing wages for women, closing the pay gap, that's a place for growth. Uh, those that are in poverty, poor people, there's a ton of economic growth available if we can get them all fully employed at good jobs and good wages. How do we do that? Education. Um, and the other aspect of it is how many people are home right now because they are having to serve as caregivers for elderly folks or because they're taking care of their children. Right? Um, a suburban woman in Wisconsin was written about in NPR this morning. Um, she got laid off at the beginning of the pandemic because her job uh, and her industry can't really survive in this economy uh, or under the pandemic. She's been looking for jobs at $15 an hour. If she took on any job at $15 an hour, she would net $30 at the end of the week after having to pay for childcare. So if a tax increase pays for childcare, then you've employed the childcare caregiver and you're allowing that parent to go work, right? Now there's two people who have jobs in this economy. So I think that too much focus trickle down, trickle down economics doesn't work. I think that that's part of why I changed parties is coming to that understanding. Took me a long time. Um, but seeing the glut of cash held onto by Apple and some of the biggest companies as they came out of the last recession, that money did not trickle down. It went to executive pay, stock buybacks, uh, and shareholders, which are fine uses for a private company. Yeah. But if you give a if if you give a big company an extra hundred thousand dollars, how much of that do they turn around and use to pay employees? If you believe in a free market, then employees are hired and paid based on the lowest wage you can possibly pay them to get them to come work for you. Right? That's how free market works. It's competition, but it's competition to the bottom price. So when you give a company more money, that doesn't make it immediately that they're going to pay their people more. They would only have to pay their people more if the economy was, if everybody was fully employed and they couldn't get employees. Yeah, yeah. But we have underemployment. So there's always more employees to be had. So I just disagree on the economics, the, the data of it, if you will. Um, I think we need to put more resources and dollars toward the bottom of our economy, economy and building up those who are suffering, helping people get back to work, helping educate people for the 21st century jobs, uh, more caregivers so more people can work. I think if we put money there, the overall economy will grow much more than if we just cut taxes or keep tax cuts for the rich. John, one of the other arguments is this whole idea of socialism. Um, the accusation is that the Biden presidency, not necessarily because of Biden himself, but because of the strong influence of the far left in the Democratic Party, will pull the country more and more into a socialist society. So, so on that point, I mean, I think that Republicans and, and even Jonathan, to an extent, your, your last guess, um, somewhat conflate the individual with the party. And 
the U.S. is not a parliamentary system. We don't vote for the party. We vote for the person. Right. When you're pulling the lever for Donald Trump, you are picking him. You're endorsing him and saying, I'm willing to accept all the bad because of whatever good I'm going to get from it. And the same time, if you're voting for Joe Biden, you're voting for Joe Biden. He went through a primary of 20 candidates and he was overwhelmingly the one selected. So the Democratic Party, while the Republicans might say they're socialist and all incredibly left leaning, the Democratic Party picked their most moderate candidate to represent them. Joe Biden is a moderate. I mean, he's going to try to work in bipartisan ways. He believes in institutions and he's going to try to uphold those, at least from what I've seen, um, at least from his interviews, you know, and his policies that he's put out there on his website, you know, and, and elsewhere. So I think that the idea that Democrats are socialists, obviously Republicans use that as a smear word. They mean it as, uh, you know, they're trying to slander. Democrats, and they use it to, in the worst possible meaning, right? Socialism is horrible, and you're socialist. Is Joe Biden that way? I mean, he's not. What is he doing that is socialist? And he is not his party. We elect the person in the U.S. So don't, I think people who say, I'm going to vote for Trump just because I'm voting for the Republicans, fine, but accept it and understand the bargain you're making. Now, you made a comment earlier about the idea of the the crony capitalism and yeah thank you jonathan for your time today and we're gonna few questions and we bring it to wrap here uh, one of the one of the accusation that some may have for, for biden is some of the things that have come about his son and how he's taken advantage of his father's position yeah so from your vantage point i mean yeah. is accused for character and it's what he's done and is that fair game you feel for, for Chris yeah. to feel that? I think it's fair to critique Hunter Biden and a system that gave him a board seat if he didn't earn it by merit. Right? He got a board seat in a Turkish company. Is that right? Or Iranian company, Burisma? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, well, one in uh, Ukraine and. Ukraine? What, yeah. Essentially, one in China. Company. Sorry, that's right. I, I mean, um, so he gets a board seat on a Ukrainian company because of his connections. That is crony capitalism. Um, I don't think it's right. Uh, I don't know what legislation you could do to stop it, especially something that could uh, ha have jurisdiction in Ukraine. Right? I don't know how we stop that there. We could certainly stop it here. We could limit who can serve on board seats in the U.S. I mean, you look through companies, all, all U.S. companies. You look through their board of directors, guarantee a lot of those people aren't being selected for their merit because they've got great ideas on how to better run the operations of the company, right? You look at the board of directors and a lot of it, it's a, uh, somebody's just giving their endorsement and they're getting paid to be a director because of who they are in their career, right? And, that, and that's fine. I mean, that's it's private companies choosing to spend their money that way. It's effectively marketing, right? But when it's because they're a politician, I think after office, I mean, the number of politicians who leave office and then join boards of directors, very high. And they get paid a lot of money to do it, right? Um, is it right? I don't know. It's a private company. Private companies can, I think, choose to pay how they want to pay. Um, if there is any interference with the governing of the country or any direct link, if there is a direct link between Hunter Biden getting that job and there's evidence that the FBI proves that showed that Joe Biden did something because Hunter got the board, you know, there's a quid pro quo there. Yeah. Prosecute it. But if there isn't, 
then he got a board seat because of his name, um, which is wrong. I think it's gross. Um, but I think it, and it's also happening everywhere else in the country right now. So um, if we're going to talk about families using their connections, the Trump administration collecting fees for his hotels from the Secret Service um, and foreign dignitaries, I think that's also wrong. Mm. So let's look at it on both sides. Well, Jonathan, I'm Jonathan. John, thank you so much, man. You know, and I asked Jonathan this question. Why aren't more people like you? I mean, I, I want to see, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a minister, I'm a, I'm a business coach, um, and, and, I, and, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm a promoter of biblical values in the public square. Why aren't there more Johns and Jonathans in the arena? You, you kind of got your toe in the arena. Yeah. What has to happen? I mean, you have to admit, though you and Jonathan do, do not agree, uh, on some of the policies, but you have to admit that his approach was kind of like yours. He made the case for his side. It was that, do you think that as a, as a competitor or as a player in the arena that you appreciated the way he came across? Yes. I respect the way he addressed it. I, I respect the way he looked at it and it was logical to me what he was saying and how it justified his vote and what he thinks people should do. And you did uh, the same thing. My question is, why not more of you guys? I mean, why don't we see more right. John Boylston and Jonathan's in the arena? For me, I think it goes back to the initial kind of the big meta question I asked you. Who would Jesus vote for? Would Jesus engage in politics? I mean, I, I've wondered this for a long time. There's so many um, evangelical pastors in the country who are Republican and endorse Republican candidates, campaign for them, support them. Um, there does not seem to be the same number of evangelical pastors on the Democratic side. Right? And I keep wondering, where are they? What are they doing? You know, um, And as I've tried to wrestle with that question, I think some of them don't believe in engaging in politics. I think they think that it would um, damage their faith and require them to compromise in a way that doesn't, uh, it's not consistent with their values. Right? You have to, in politics is compromise. And depending on the nature of our faith, there's certain compromises that can't be made. And I think it's, I respect people who uh, stay out of the political spectrum or arena because they don't want to compromise their own faith. I have immense respect for that because I understand the pull and because I am in both worlds, right? I am doing it. Um, and it's because I've arrived at a point in, in my faith where I can talk about these things, but I'm also not running for office right now. Again, I probably won't for a while because of where I've seen the parties go and what I know, the positions I know that I would need to take in order to get elected from as a candidate from either party. I just can't be consistent and be uh, have integrity and, and speak about what I believe and get elected right now. I don't think there's appetite for somebody who has some moderate views, who isn't all Republican, all Democrat. I have some views from both sides. And, you know, and so Jonathan, uh, John, sorry, John, make your final case. So the elections is in a week from tomorrow. Yep. yep. Um, our viewers are and listeners are concerned about faith, entrepreneurship, and job creation. Why should they vote for Biden? How will that help them in those areas? The president of the United States is more than anything else a leader. 
I think that that leadership component that Jonathan identified is the number one factor to consider with a presidential candidate more than at any other time uh, in my life with the COVID pandemic, pandemic, we need a leader. We need somebody out there articulating a plan, uh, encouraging the country, encouraging us to work together for the common good, helping the least among us, helping those who are suffering and vulnerable and making sure that we can all get through this, through this together. Um, and I think Joe Biden is at least trying to do that. I've seen no effort, effort from President Trump. I don't know what his plan is on the pandemic other than to write it out. He won't even tell people to wear masks. Whether you think the science 100% supports it or not, if you think there's any waffling, what is the damage, right? All the studies that I've read suggest that if we had 95% mask, people wearing masks through February, we'd save 100,000 plus American lives in the next few months. It's not over yet. We haven't lost to the virus. We can still, if we all collectively acted together in the next month or two, we could change the trajectory, at least for the near term of the country until a vaccine is ready. Joe Biden wants to provide that leadership. He's trying to provide that leadership. He will try to get us all act together for the common good. Donald Trump doesn't seem to care about the common good. He doesn't seem to have a plan and he doesn't seem to be, in my opinion, he's not a leader. Um, and actually, Jonathan, your other guest agreed. So to, on that point, we do agree. And I think that we need to vote for a person and a leader. Uh, we can't compromise our faith. And um, yeah, so that's why I vote for Biden. All right. Now we do have also international viewers and and um, and 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 those who listen to our podcast, and though they cannot vote nor contribute to American politics, but they can't pray for America. And as you know, what happens in America has a direct and indirect impact on the rest of the world. Why should why why is Biden best for our friends around the world? Because you can at least believe him. I think he honors his word or at least tries to. I don't think he intentionally uh, lies and misrepresents things. You know, Donald Trump won't even keep basic agreements. He had a rally in Duluth, Minnesota. He agreed to abide by their rules of keeping his gathering to 250 people or less. He had 250,000 people show up. That was a week or two ago. He does not keep his word. He said he was going to have a tax plan that would cut taxes on the wealthy. He didn't, or that, that would raise taxes on the wealthy. He didn't, he cut taxes. He said Mexico was gonna pay for the wall. Well, it's not, I mean, even some of these, we know they weren't even, we knew they were not gonna happen when he said it, but he keeps saying it. If you're around the world, how do you engage in diplomacy with someone who, when you cannot trust their word or even think they're trying to be honest? Biden makes mistakes, he misstates things, absolutely. But I at least think he's trying to be honest. Wow. Well said. Well, John, John, thank you so much for that, John. We always like to close with encouraging our entrepreneurs. You know, they've had COVID-19, yeah. the social unrest in the United States, uh, the fires on the West Coast, economy challenges around the world. And what, what as an entrepreneur yourself, and you've had to bear through too, uh, as you look at keeping your people employed, your company going, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what, how would you encourage them to press on? I mean, we just have to have faith, right? I mean, um, I think I look outside my window right now. It's a beautiful fall day. It's a blue sky, Portland, Oregon, you know, an anarchist jurisdiction, apparently. But at least for the moment, 
looks beautiful out there. It's calm. I think that the American spirit is strong. Um, I think that even if our national leaders won't call for us to work together, we can. We can band together as communities to support each other, create safety nets for each other. Um, and as we do that, I think the economy will survive. I mean, it's amazing. Um, I, I think the American spirit is amazing. I think that we can do this. And what is getting in the way of our success right now is that we have leaders who are dividing us into two camps. Mm. Right? Imagine if wow. Republicans and Democrats agreed on how to handle this pandemic right now. What if we were all unified and said, yep, we're going to do this together. Here's the plan for the sake of the country. Wouldn't that be nice? And that's what we normally did in wartime in America. That's and what the, we did in 9-11. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, the support for George W. Bush, wasn't it something like 80% approval rating in the weeks right after? That means more than the majority of Democrats supported him for that period of time. Because of the way he stood up as a leader for the country. And decisions were made after that that you know people disagree with. But at least in the immediate aftermath, there was um, a universal, it's we're all in this together. It actually actually saved his presidency because if you remember before 9-11, he was getting a lot of criticism. It, it oh, yeah. He rose as a leader and that really saved his president. Yeah, the 2000 uh, market crash, the, the first tech bubble bursting. Yeah. John, thank you so much, my friend. Listen, keep running for office. We need more Johns yeah. in, the, in the public square. My prayer is that God will raise up on all three sides, independents, Republicans, and Democrats, people of faith and conviction that, that, that love the country and that love free enterprise and that are willing to make decisions and actions that protect God's people, advances uh, his will, and pre preserve our nation. This is, this is a great republic, and we should be working to preserve it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you so much. Listen, okay. hey, if you enjoy this podcast, we want you to share it. Share with your friends, share with your family on your social media, share it. If you know people who may be discouraged right now, share this, that they can hear from a citizen, John, an entrepreneur, a lawyer, one who has no dog in the fight, just making a case for yep. his position, how he feels. You know what? We ought to be able as Christians to have dialogue. Some of you may not like this particular program because you said, Patrice, why do you have John here? You know what? I believe that we should be hearing from men of goodwill from all sides so that at the end of the day, we can make decisions based on conviction. You may not like the fact I had Jonathan here and because you feel that Patrice, he's a pro-Trump guy. We ought to hear on both sides. What I like about these two men, they're men of conviction, men of faith, and they're able to make a case without demeaning the other side or without somehow feeling as though you've lost your faith because you choose one side or the other. Let's engage. With that said, please vote uh, a week from tomorrow. Because again, even though I don't think Jesus might participate as we think he might today, but if you give the conviction to, go for it. And I also believe that if you don't want to vote based on conviction, don't. Right. But don't do it just because you don't know what to do. Do your homework and seek for conviction. If you have the conviction, go for it. Don't compromise yourself. Say it again, John. Don't compromise yourself. There Don't it is. There it is. There it is. Good. Well said. And if you want more information about the Nehemiah Project, about how we can serve you as an entrepreneur, visit our website, nehemiahecommunity.com, nehemiahecommunity.com. 
On our website, you can learn about our training program, biblical entrepreneurship, identity and destiny and the like. You can learn about our coaching program, how we can come alongside you and help you coach you in your business to go to one level to the other. You can learn about our access to capital, how we can provide capital to help you with your business or how you can join our community, one of the fastest growing entrepreneurship community in the world. Asia, Africa, Europe, Latin America, North America, You'll find entrepreneurs from all parts of the world there. Join us, and together, let's transform the world. With that said, let me pray for you. John, thank you again. Let me pray for you. Father, may the Lord bless those who are listening. May you, oh God, right now, bless them to know their talents, their gifts and skills, and to be able to use them faithfully in the way that enables them to one day hear those words, just as you are saying to John right now, well done good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over much. God bless you. John, thank you. You were good, man. You have to come back. Thanks, Patrice. I'd be happy to. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Enjoy.